It's Psalm 73, if you would look there with me. Going to be a little bit of a disappointing message after what Christy just did here, so you get at least two messages today on Psalm 73, and it's a, it's a stunning, stunning song. Written by a man named Asaph, written about 1000 B.C. So, friends, here's a, a worship song written three millennia ago that in the kindness of God, the Spirit of God wrote through Asaph, and then he preserved it for three millennia, and then he gave us the gift of being able to read in English, and we have this in English, and what a towering gift to be able to look at this song. So Asaph was the temple worship leader. He was the Shea Lee O'Neill of three millennia ago, and he was writing songs and singing songs, and he'd had some CDs out and some singles were going good, and he, he was just doing extremely well. And he ran into a very rough patch in his life. And he talks about that rough patch in his life here in Psalm 73 because he said, he's going to explain to us in verse 1 something he believes, and he believes it very deeply. But as he's looking around, he's not seeing it work out. And he's starting to feel pretty frustrated and pretty angry and pretty envious and pretty embittered. And spiritually, he's about to go in the ditch because of what he believes compared to what he's seeing. And so we're going to investigate what's going on in his heart and his mind today. Psalm 73, please, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. They are, <clears throat> I'm sorry, their, their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people, speaking of the wicked, his people return to this place, and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know, and is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. They are always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Then the whole psalm turns in verse 15. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome to me, until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when, ar when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed those who are unfaithful to you. 
But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Let me pray for us, please, friends. Thank you so much, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for all you've done for us, all you've given to us. Thank you so much for preserving this song for three millennia. As we think about it today, Father, I pray we'd honor you. I pray we wouldn't mock you by hearing your word and leaving unchanged. I pray we'd submit ourselves to your spirit and your book. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Life's not good for me right now because uh, I have a wet diaper. Life will be good for me when I get a dry diaper. Life's not good for me right now because my sister hid my baseball mitt. Life will be good for me when I find that mitt. Life's not good for me right now because I didn't get the teacher I wanted for third grade. Life will be good when I get the teacher I want. Life's not good for me right now because I didn't make the soccer team. Life will be good for me when I get on the soccer team. Life's not good for me right now because I didn't get in the college I want to be in. Life will be good when I get in that college. Life's not good for me right now because I'm not married. Life will be good for me when I'm married. Life's not good for me right now because I'm not getting along with my wife. Life will be good for me when we're getting along. Life's not good for me right now because we don't have children. Life will be good for me when we have children. Life's not good for me right now because our kids are misbehaving. Life will be good when they shape up. Life's not good for me right now because I didn't get the promotion I wanted at work. Life will be good for me when I get that promotion. Life's not good for me because I'm re being forced to retire. Life will be good for me when I get a good job. Life's not good for me right now because I'm sick. Life will be better when I get healthy. Life's not good for me right now because my kids are making me live in this care home. Life will be good for me when I get out of here. Life's not good for me right now because I've got a wet diaper. Life will be good when I get a dry diaper. I said all that, friends, to ask you this question. When is life good for you? How do you define the good life? When do you say, this is great. Thank you, Lord. I'm content. This is a good life for me right now. And Asaph was asking that very question, when is life good? And he had defined in his mind what a good life looked like. And then he watched in the world what was happening to evil people and to himself. And he said, this isn't working out. My definition of the good life, the thing I believe very deeply, is not working at all. So I want to walk you through this psalm as he wrestles with God in this whole question of what is the good life and why is this not working out and how, how am I ever going to deal with this and adjust to this. And he begins in verse 1 by giving to us his definition and his belief, his spiritual belief. The good life is certain for those who love God well. It is certain for those who love God well. Surely, I'm certain of this, there is no doubt in my mind, Asaph says, surely God is good to Israel. And you're going to see that his definition of good as we go through this psalm is, well, I'm, I don't, I'm not sick. My wealth is increasing. I'm not in trouble like other men. Uh, every day I'm prospering. Uh, I'm getting what I want. Life is good for those who are part of Israel. Who are the people of Israel? They're God's covenant people. They're Abraham's children. 
They have the Ark of the Covenant. They have the sacrificial system. They have the promises. They have the Bible. They have the prophets. God interceded for them and dried up the, the Red Sea and he dried up the Jordan River. We're the people of Israel. We're God's special covenant people. We're in right relationship with him. And therefore, we can expect a good life. And if we translate that to today, we might put it in terms of, hey, I trusted Christ. I'm a believer. God, God owes me something. When I was 19 years old, I had a very keen understanding of my sin problem. Very keenly understood that I had said things, wanted things, done things, felt things, taken things that didn't belong to me. I had violated the standards of God. I had violated the character of God. I had violated the intentions of God. It was very clear to me. And when I was 19, I learned another truth from the Bible, which is not only did I have a sin problem, not only was I separated from God, not only was I helpless to fix it, but that Jesus had done something about it. And his core message is he paid for my sin on my behalf instead of me as a substitute in my place. Traded the life of the greater for the life of the lesser. So I'm standing in this line of about 110 billion people waiting my turn to be crucified for my sin. And I get to the front of the line and Jesus says, Dave, stand over here. And I stand over here. And he goes up and he's crucified for me in my place. And then he says, Dave, I'm going to offer you a gift. I'm going to offer you forgiveness and eternal life if you will do this one thing. If you'll put your trust in me and what I did on the cross for forgiveness. Give up on being a good person. Give up on my good works outweigh my bad works. Give up on I gave money to an orphanage. Give up on I'm better than people in prison. Give up on I've done religious things. I got baptized. I got catechized. Give up on all that stuff. And just say, my hope is in what Jesus did. Now, friends, based on Hebrews 9, I'm convinced that we're all going to stand before God alone and he's going to ask a question something like this. Why should I forgive your sin and let you live in my heaven? I can say anything I want to say. I've been working on my answer for 49 years. I've got a lot of answers wrong in life. I'm not going to get this one wrong. Dave, why should I forgive your sin and let you live in my heaven? Because, Father, Jesus already paid for it, and all my hope is in what he did. And if he says to me, what else, Dave? I'm going to say, I don't have anything else. Jesus is my plan A. I have no plan B. I got no backup plan. I'm a person who's put all my hope in what Christ did. So the Old Testament parallel to the people of Israel, the people who are in covenant relationship is, I'm in family relationship with God because I trusted Christ. And if you want to project yourself into that and say, okay, what, what's God owe me if I've made that decision? If you haven't made that decision, God's giving you an opportunity today to make that decision. Most important decision you have to make. But he, he's in covenant relationship with God. I'm in covenant uh, faith relationship with God. I'm part of his family. And he said he's good to those who are in that relationship and to those who are pure at heart. Not only do they have the Abrahamic relationship with God, but Asaph said, I was worried about my inner life. I was concerned about my thoughts and my motives. I was confessing. I was, I was bringing stuff to God. I was saying to myself, I, I don't want to be just the outward kind of a guy that you think's doing good. I want to be the person who's really working on my heart. Asaph is saying, hey, God, I'm the guy who, who turns his head away when the bank teller bends over. I don't look down her blouse anymore. 
I'm worried about what's going on in my heart. I've got the covenant relationship. I'm doing the right thing. And surely, you have to be good to me. You have to make my life as I've defined good. That's what he believes. <clears throat> then he comes to verses 2 to 12, and he sees the wicked are prospering and his own life is floundering. Exactly the opposite of what he believes. And he goes into great detail about how the wicked are prospering and he is floundering. He says in verse 2, I almost stumbled, I almost slipped. Some of you probably have lived in the north. I lived in the north most of my life, and I've had many falls where my feet hit the ice, went out from under me. There's three main kinds of falls. There's the one where you hit your tailbone, totally miserable. There's the other one where you hit flat on your back and knock the wind out of yourself, totally miserable. And then there's the other one where you hit your head on the ice in the back, totally miserable. There's no good options when you're falling. And when you're falling, if you've ever done this, your mind says to you just before you even hit the ground, this is going to be horrible. This is going to be horrible. Have any of you experienced this, please? Yeah, it's going to be terrible. I've had many times in my life where that's happened, but I've had a few times where I was going down, my feet had slipped, my mind had already said to me, this is going to be horrible, and my foot caught on a piece of gravel. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I did not want to do that again. What a joy, what a blessing. Asaph said, I was going down spiritually. I was just about to, to, to make a spiritual wreck of my life because here's what I was doing. I was looking at all these people. I was envious of the arrogant. People who were clearly proud and arrogant. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I was, I, was, I was envious of arrogant people. He says on top of that, uh, I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. These people are not the verse one kind of people. And they're prospering. He said these are people who have no pains in their death. There's two different ways to die, at least, friends. One of them is uh, laying on the couch, taking a nap, and waking up in eternity, like my brother-in-law did. I call it the Uncle Steve method. I want to sign up for the Uncle Steve method. I just want to have a nice big lunch, lay down, take a nap, and wake up in heaven. That's one way to go. That's how these people were going out. The other way is the 21-month fight with cancer and the chemo and, and all the radiation and the losing weight and just all the sadness and struggle and misery of that. There's different ways to go out. Asaph says, I'm angry at these people because they're going out the easy way. He said their body is fat. Now, in America and Middle Tennessee, we say, oh, not a good thing, you know. Not happy about that. I bought a new shirt because I was coming to speak at a big-time place here. And uh, I bought the size I always bought. But apparently sizes have changed now because I, I feel like a piece of sausage in this shirt. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I've got the Noom weight loss app on my phone and I'm punching in my meals and making sure I take my walk and drinking my water and all that stuff. I mean, I've been in a constant fight with my weight my whole life. We don't like to be fat people in America. But in this setting, if you were fat, it meant <clears throat> you were wealthy. You could hire someone else to take care of your fields. You didn't have to do it anymore and you just sat in the gate with the other elders, and you ate, and you talked about important stuff. And so these people, being fat was a very good thing, and he sees that's happening to them. They're not plagued like other people. Pride is their necklace. <clears throat> they are people who things just work out for them. They're arrogant, and the necklace is right around their neck that says, I'm an extremely arrogant pe person. They put on a garment of violence every morning. 
They get up and they put on a shirt that says, I'm not going to be happy today unless I can beat someone senseless. It's like the MMA fighters. I have a huge disdain for MMA, mixed martial arts, huge disdain for cage fighting. I know four of you are going to come up to me and get after me afterwards, but I just, I have to say it. I hate that stuff. Once in a while, I'll be in a restaurant and I'll be up there and I'll look up and some guy's got another guy down and he's holding his head down with his hand on his neck and he's just beating his head until the ref gets to him. It's, it's just barbaric. It's just barbaric. I'm sorry. But these people get up every morning and say, unless I can beat someone senseless today, I'm not going to be happy. That's the kind of folks that they are. They, they are people, he says, verse 6, that their eye, I'm sorry, verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness, their imaginations of their heart run riot. It's a figure of speech that means they look across the boundary lines at what does not belong to them. They're looking at their neighbor's wife and their co-worker's job, and they're looking at their friend's car, and they're looking at all this stuff that doesn't belong to them, and they're trying to say, how can I get a hold of this stuff that does not belong to me? The imaginations of their heart run riot. There is no filter and no boundary on the stuff they're lusting after. It's the kind of people they are. And then he says in verses 8, 9, and 11, these are the original trash talkers. They're not only arrogant, but they are, they are shooting off their mouths continually. He says they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They, they get someone down and then they, they mock them. They elevate themselves. They speak from on high at the other people and, and mock them. Uh, they set their mouth against the heavens. This is a metonymy of place. It means he mentions heavens, but it means the person who lives in the heavens. They set their mouth against God himself. They're willing to say uh, ugly things against God. Their tongue prays through the earth. Verse 11, they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? They're willing to put their fist in the face of the God of the universe. Friends, if I'm at lunch this afternoon and a young man walks in, let's say he's 20 years old, he's a, a defensive tackle for the University of Tennessee, uh, I have no idea how you guys feel about the University of Tennessee, but I know it's in Tennessee, so I'm using that illustration. The kid's uh, 20 years old. He's a starting defensive tackle. He's six foot eight. He weighs 295 pounds. He's quicker than a cat. He's mean. He's angry. The two halves of his brain have not yet grown together to allow him to have rational thoughts. And he comes up to my chair and he says, that's my chair. Get out of there, old man. Now, there's lots of other chairs around the restaurant, but he wants mine. What are my two options? A, please, please have this chair. I'll find something else. Or option B, which is pure insanity, even though the two halves of my brain have grown together. Maybe they're disconnecting a little again. And I say, no, it's my chair, punk. What are you thinking? You and me in the parking lot. You and me in the parking lot, punk. And so here's a 68-year-old man. I've lost a step or two, you know, since I was second string tight end in high school. I've lost a step or two, but I'm going to go out in the parking lot with a, with a kid who outweighs me and is 18 times quicker than me and who's angry and mean. And that's just, that's insanity. That's insanity. Let me tell you something more insane. Stick your fist in the face of God. That is the ultimate insanity. Stick your fist in the face of God. This is the being who created by speaking let there be everything, and it was. This is the being who makes mountains shake, 
who makes rooms fill up with smoke. This is the being about whom the children of Israel said, Moses, don't let him talk to us. We can't listen to this, please. This scares, the, this scares the daylights out of us. You talk to him and tell us what he said. This is the amazing being of the universe. He knows everything, sees everything. He's ultimate power. And they have their fists in his face. These are people of absolute spiritual insanity. And he says in verse 12, But these are the wicked, and they're always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. Things are going great for them. And this is not right. Then he says to us in verses 13 and 14, here's my fear. I'm afraid I have served the Lord in vain. I've been pursuing God in vain. I've been doing all these things. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. It's been a waste of my time to worry about my motives and my thoughts. It's been a waste of my time to confess my sin to God. It's been a waste of my time to pursue God from my inner heart life. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. It's a reference to going to the temple and doing the temple washings. I've wasted my time to go do the washings and to bring my sacrifice and to make my confession and to pour out my drink offerings. I've wasted my time to show up at the three feasts. I've wasted my time to read the Torah. I have, I have just wasted my time in pursuing God because uh, I've done what I should do and he hasn't given me what I needed for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning despite the pillar of spirituality, despite the pillar of Hebrewness that I have been, I'm just stricken all day long. I want you to imagine yourself uh, on a summer trip in uh, North Texas. You're on the highway. It's uh, like 102 degrees. There's, the humidity is 2%. Uh, your air conditioner goes out. You're forced to roll your window down. You're driving along at 70 miles an hour. You've got this 70 mile an hour hot wind blowing on you. Two hours later, you're about to become a raisin. I mean, you're just, you're just parched. It's horrible. And you see a rest stop, and you pull in the rest stop, and there is a Coke machine, you know, the kind behind the bars there. And so you scrounge around in the, in the console. You find $3 bills. You feed them into this Coke machine, and you push the Diet Coke button, and you can already feel that delicious carbonation burn on the back of your throat from this Diet Coke, and you push the button and it goes clunk, but it doesn't go the right kind of clunk. It's not the clunk that drops it to the bottom, it's the clunk that hangs it up somewhere. And you're thinking to yourself, oh no, 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 no. You reach through the bars, you're shaking the machine like this, still not coming out. You're flipping the handle to get your money back, no good. You lay on the ground, you reach in through the bars with your arm, you push the flap back, you're up in this machine, you know, you're like a veterinarian trying to deliver a calf. It's like, I am going to get that Coke. And uh, you never get it. You never get it. Put your three bucks in, you didn't get your Diet Coke out. That's what Asaph is saying. I put my three bucks in, and I didn't get what I deserved. I have served God in vain. I have wasted all this effort and all this energy. And as I said when I was reading this psalm, it turns in verse 15. Because in verse 15 down to verse 22, he gets recalibrated and he says, Now I see that the wicked perish in a flash. Life was going great. They were prospering. Everything was coming to them. It was going great. But then he said, I see they perish in a flash. Verse 15, he says, If I had said this, uh, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If I had said all this stuff in verses 2 to 14... 
I would have discouraged a whole generation of God's followers. If I just stood up in the temple worship and said, God failed me, I don't believe in him, I don't appreciate what he's done, I put my, my three bucks in, I didn't get my Diet Coke out, I would have discouraged so many people. Friends, uh, a year or two ago, a, a worship leader in Australia, whose name I don't know, um, made a bunch of money, wrote a bunch of songs, led worship for a long time, and then comes out and says, I don't believe in God. All you Christians, you're just duped. You guys are idiots. And he just walked away from the faith. Asaph said, I almost did that. I almost discouraged a whole generation of people. If I'd have said this stuff out loud, it would have been horrible. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome on my sight. Asaph did an extremely smart, smart thing. He thought about it. As human beings, we have a massive gift to think about our thinking. We don't do it enough. But we have the gift of thinking about our thinking. When a dog thinks, I'm going to chase a car, it doesn't sit down and say, is that a good idea or a bad idea? You know? No, it's just off and running. You know? It's just off and running. But I have the opportunity to sit down before the Holy Spirit of God and think about what I believe. Think about my thinking. And Asaph did that, and he pondered it, and he said, uh, I was troubled by what I was thinking, verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. He came into the sanctuary of God, and who is in the sanctuary of God? God. And who is the one sane being in the universe? God. I mean, I believe myself to be a sane person, but I'm sure I believe dozens of things that are not exact matches of reality. God is the only 100% sane being in the universe, and when he got in connection with the sane being in the universe, then he began to believe what he should believe. When we get in connection with this one being who knows everything, everything that's true, everything that actually exists, then we, we get our hearts recalibrated. And it's in the presence of God, the sanctuary of God, in the book of God, where he got recalibrated. And he said, now I see that these people uh, die quickly. They're on a slippery place. They're cast down to destruction. In a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Life is going along. It's good, prospering, more and more money. Uh, fatness, everything's working, and then all of a sudden they are gone. Friends, in, in the early times of uh, sailing ships, when they were first going around the world, they took one-third extra sailors over what they needed because they knew a third of them were going to be washed overboard, just swept away. One, one moment a guy's walking along the deck, the next moment a rogue wave hits him, and he's overboard. There's no turning around going for him. There's no life jackets. There's no survival wetsuits. There's no flares. There's no GPS. He's just gone. We're going on. And the wicked people are just gone. And I can think I'm old enough in my lifetime to think of some people who have been incredibly wicked. And they're just gone. They're just absolutely swept away. No matter how much they prospered for a time, they're swept away. They're absolutely gone. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. God is an incredibly patient being, but his patience doesn't last eternally. At some point, he says, that's enough. And they are gone like a dream is gone. I have had 20 times in my life, friends, where I've had this bizarre dream. It was just crazy. And I say to myself, I'm going to go downstairs and tell Kathy about this. And I go downstairs, and I get a cup of coffee, and I say, honey, I had this bizarre dream. Last night, 
Hmm. Oh, it's gone. I forgot it. It's just swept away. Can't remember it. Evil people are swept away. They are gone. You can't even find them anymore. God's patience will run out. Verse 21, he said, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within myself, <clears throat> he was embittered in his heart that life wasn't working. And, and the metaphor is he had an arrow through his kidney. I would hate to be shot by an arrow, friends, but this is like having an arrow through your kidney. You can't imagine that kind of pain. He said, I, I was a mess. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, God. I was as dumb as a cow. I was as dumb as a cow, God. Uh, my, my cousin was a dairy farmer, and you could milk the cows in the morning, put them out to pasture. And then if you built a new gate while they were out to pasture, and then you brought them in, every cow stopped and looked at the gate like, what's that? <laughs> dumb as a cow. Let, a, a new gate just messes up the whole world. And he said, I was like a beast. I was like an animal. I was confused by new gates. I was so messed up. And even though I was that messed up, verses 23 down to verse 28, even though that I was that messed up, I discovered the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. Verse 20, uh, 23, he says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Even when I'm embittered, even when I'm ranting in my heart about how life's not working, even when I'm spiritually as dumb as a cow, you are continually with me and you have hold of my right hand. It's your faithfulness, God. It's not my faithfulness. It's your faithfulness. You're still walking with me in that setting. With your counsel, you guide me, and afterward, you, you receive me to glory. God is saying, I will give you counsel in living in this extremely difficult world, and then I'll take you to glory. I don't know if I signed up for that, friends. <laughs> That's just great. This is a miserable, difficult world in many ways. But God gives us counsel in the midst of it, and then he takes us to glory when, when we're done with this life. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? The answer, no one. Who do I desire on earth but you? No one. You're everything to me, Lord. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. He's literally saying, when I'm lying on my deathbed and I know that my heart is quitting, I know it's quitting, you are my strength. You are my hope. You are the one I'm leaning on. Friends, I had some heart troubles last year. Uh, not major stuff, but, but enough to really get my attention. And uh, I'm in, in severe AFib, and my heart's not working right. And, and you know, it's, it's beyond disconcerting. It's beyond disconcerting. And he's saying, if I'm laying on my bed and I know my heart is quitting, still, God, I'm not going to despair, because you, Lord, are my strength. And you're my portion forever. It's a very interesting uh, phrase that he uses because what he's saying is, I am inheriting God. You could flip over and read uh, Psalm 16, 5 and 6, where David says, uh, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. He has inherited God himself. And it's the idea that in, in the early times you would take a, a big handful of rods and you would throw them, and then where they landed, you would draw the line out from them, and that would be the land that you were inheriting. And David said, I inherited all the bottom land, all the water land, all the good land, all the, all the high-yield land. I inherited God himself. And his heritage, Asaph is saying, God is my portion forever. I inherited $45,000 from my father. Uh, I gave a bunch of the Lord's work, a bunch to my kids, and I squandered the rest on woodworking tools. <laughs> it's all gone. Don't have a dime of it left. 
But I've got another inheritance coming. The God of the universe. The God of the universe. What a joy, what a blessing, what a gift is coming to me. He says to us, those people who are far from you, they're going to perish. Those people will be destroyed who have been unfaithful to you, God. But as for me, here's my conclusion, God. Here's my conclusion after fighting through all of this. Number one, the nearness of God is my good. I'm going to define the good life as being close to God. Period. Here's his second conclusion. I have made the Lord God my refuge. When I get in trouble, when I'm being threatened, when I'm being challenged, when life is not working for me, when it's beyond what I can do, I'm going to run to God. Not run into pornography, not run into alcohol, not run into food, not run into uh, video game addiction, not run into any of that stuff. God is my refuge. He's the place I'm going. And then he says, that I may tell of all your works. God, I am going to tell anybody who will listen about what you've done. What you've done in creation, what you've done in sustaining, what you've done in my salvation, what you've done in my life. That time I needed 300 bucks or my checks were going to bounce and I came out to my car and somebody had put 300 bucks on the seat of my car even though I hadn't said anything to anybody. I'm going to tell people about that. God is the one who spoke everything into existence and worried about a kid in seminary who needed 300 bucks. He just does all this stuff. I'm going to tell people about what he does for us. The nearness of God is my good. And the question is, how do you define the good life? When is life good for you? I took my first year of Greek at the Wycliffe Bible Translators Base, uh, 1977, 200 years ago, a long time ago. We had a classmate there named Chet Bitterman. <clears throat> Chet Bitterman uh, finished his training in linguistics and became a Bible translator and moved to South America. And he was captured by leftist guerrillas. And Chet was taken out into the jungle. He was tied up in an abandoned bus. And he was executed. Died for his faith in Christ. Now, friends, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen to me, and I doubt if it's going to happen to you. But let me give you a little piece of counsel if you ever find yourself in that situation. Counsel from God the Holy Spirit through Asaph. Lean your head against the glass. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Calm your heart and say to yourself, the nearness of God is my good. Let me tell you what's more likely to happen. You're going to run an errand some afternoon on a cold, wet, rainy, middle Tennessee day. And you're going to be headed home and your car is going to die. You're going to coast off to the edge of the road. You're going to be frustrated. It's cold. It's miserable. You call AAA, and they say, oh, we'll be there in an hour and a half, and the rain's dripping down on your car, and it's getting colder and colder, and you're just sitting in there. Let me give you a piece of advice. From God the Holy Spirit through Asaph. Lean your head against the glass. Close your eyes. Calm your heart and say to yourself, the nearness of God is my good. Let me tell you what could happen. You might work for two years developing a product or a software or a song or something, and it just turns out brilliant. And you hire an attorney and you start negotiating with these companies, and you hone in on a company in Denver and you fly up there with your attorney and you talk to him for two days and you work out the contract and you read it and reread it and rewrite it, and it's finally done, and your attorney says, Yeah, that's the one you want to sign. So you sign this contract. And with one signature, your net worth goes up $7.8 million. 
$7.8 million with one signature. So you head back to the airport and you celebrate, you upgrade to first class. You're sitting in there looking out the window, the lights of Denver are getting smaller and smaller. Let me give you a piece of counsel from God the Holy Spirit through Asaph. Lean your head against the window, close your eyes, take a deep breath, calm your heart, and say to yourself, the nearness of God is my good. It doesn't matter if it's an abandoned bus, a broken down car, or first class, friends. The nearness of God is my good. The good life is not about prosperity. It's about proximity. Let's pray together, please. Father, we are deeply grateful for your ongoing kindness to us. We thank you so much for preserving this psalm. Thank you for Asaph and his honesty. Thank you for your Spirit's work to preserve this psalm for us. So I pray for myself, Father, and I pray for each one of us. I pray for the recalibration in our hearts and minds that we can be people who say, the nearness of God is my good. My life, the goodness of my life has nothing to do with my money, nothing to do with COVID, nothing to do with my health, nothing to do with my age, nothing to do with my recognition. The nearness of God is my good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.